we're starting a new series, Jesus Is. Here's a question. Who is Jesus? If someone was to ask you that question, because maybe they know you go to church, or they know you read your Bible, and if they were to say to, say to you, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question? Or make it maybe more specific or, or more personal. What if someone were to ask you, who is Jesus to you? How would you fill in that blank? How would you respond to that question? The reality is, I think a lot of us are not real sure what we'd say. You know, so we go to our kind of Sunday school memory days, and we kind of go, we maybe mumble and jumble our way through and say, well, you know, Jesus is, well, he's the son of God, or he's the Lord, or he's a good teacher, or on and on we go with what we've kind of learned that Jesus is, but that just sounds so, I don't know, polished and personal, it just sounds so, I mean, it's true, okay, I get it, but is there more to that? Is there more to that question? Because the reality is, for many of us, we don't take time to think about who Jesus really is to us personally. When we come to church, we worship, we might give, we might have a life group in our house, but oftentimes we don't stop and really think about who is Jesus and what does he mean to you. But there was a time Jesus turned this question toward his disciples. We see it in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says that when he came to a region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, it's not because Jesus needs to have his ego stroked here, okay? He's he's just, you know, he's been ministering for a while. He wants to know what people are saying. So he says, "Who, who do they say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's pretty easy when that question's kind of like, What do people say that I am? But then notice what he does. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? I'm certain that of the group, Peter spoke first, because we do see him respond to this, because Peter always talks before he thinks. But I think he actually got this one right. If you follow the storyline, you can see the rest of it. But I, I want to just pause when he turns the question from this very kind of comfortable popular opinion, general consensus, you know, who do people say I am? That's comfortable. It's not very personable, right? That's just kind of like, well, we can take that one on. And as, we, and as we move toward Easter, guess what? History Channel's doing this. A lot of other networks are taking a look at, well, who is this Jesus? And they all have all kinds of theories, and it's okay to talk in that realm. But what happens when you're personally confronted with this question? Who is do you say, I am? A lot of us recognize, wow, that's a little bit more of, a, of an unsettling question. Why? Because that question can only be answered in the context of a relationship. You have to have that relationship with Jesus that's vibrant and real to you to really answer this kind of question because it's not about popular opinion. There's a lot of books out there about popular opinion about who Jesus is written by people who are Christ followers and those who are just scholars who don't even believe Christ as a personal Savior. But he wasn't pushing for popular opinion. What he was looking for was a personal confession. Who do you say I am? And some of us just start feeling really awkward and uncomfortable when we start thinking about answering that question, especially if your friends or your peers or your coworkers start going down that path. But how you answer this question begins to reveal the depth of your relationship with Jesus. And the sad truth is, a lot of Christians, the depth is very shallow. You know about Jesus, maybe you come and worship Jesus, but if you were to try to wrap your your head or your answer around this question, you'd be going, I really don't know how to answer that question. So we have this series for you. If you're here and you're kind of going, I don't know how to answer that question, you're in the right place. In fact, you probably ought to have some friends come and join you as we spend the next four weeks marching toward Easter discovering this question together. Now, certainly, we can't answer this question in four weeks because Jesus is a lot more than four weeks can handle. But we're going to take a look at the Gospel of John. And over the next four weeks, we're going to look at some key characteristics, some primary characteristics that we see in the Gospel of John that paint a picture of who Jesus is. 
And the goal is that when we end this series, you'll at least have some ammo that when people ask you, maybe around this season, why do you follow Jesus or who is He to you, you can kind of begin to put some thoughts together that are personal and not just this practical theoretical stuff that a lot of times we toss around. So invite people to join you next Sunday, the following Sunday, invite them moving toward Easter. Because here's what I know about Jesus, people think He's pretty cool. All right, when it comes to Jesus, a lot of folks are okay talking about Jesus. They may not love religion. They may hate church. They might even like Christians. They may hate them. But Jesus is a, is a character that they think was neat. Even if they don't believe he was a son of God, he was at least kind of a do-gooder, and he loved people, and he was compassionate, and his life was a life of sacrifice, and, and people get that. So you know what? Invite them to learn about Jesus, because they may know a little bit about him, but they may not know him personally. And the goal of this series is to move us to the fact that Jesus is a person, and he wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us. So today, we're going to see that John shows us that Jesus is grace. Jesus is grace. This is not Jesus being like schizophrenic, two people living inside of one, not a girl named Grace. We're going to talk about the fact that he is the embodiment of grace. Now, how many huggers do we have in the room? Just raise a hand. No, you're not shy. You huggers are not shy about this. Raise a hand nice and high. Be proud. Okay, huggers, thanks. How many non-huggers in the room? Some of you don't even want to raise your hand because like, what is he going to do? Is he going to like pair up the huggers and the non-huggers and we're going to have a touchy-feely moment here? Well, I'm not going to ask you to hug each other yet. All right? Not yet. But no matter what side of the equation of hugging you fall on, a non-hugger or, or a hugger, there's one thing I think we all hold in common, and that is that moment when we experienced the awkward hug. You ever had the awkward hug? Maybe for you it was that hug that lasted a little too long. It's like guys have a code, three pats, you got to let go, because after that, it's just, it's too much. Pat, 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 okay, move on. You can fill in your own words for those three pats, but the whole point being, don't, that's good, that's comfortable, now move on. For some of you, it might have been that uh, great aunt of yours, when you were about this tall, and uh, she enveloped you with more than just her arms, if you know what I'm saying. And that was just an awkward hug. You're like, can I walk away now? Can I go to the corner? Can I go throw up? Can I do something? Because <laughs> this is awkward. For others, it was when you thought you were going in for the hug and you both leaned the same direction, and it was almost the kiss. <laughs> and it was just like, what did we just do here? What did we do? You know, I was in, I was in Paris suffering for Jesus once. Uh, on a missions trip. I know, feel bad for me. Paris is a terrible place to suffer for Jesus. And, uh, but the North Africans have taken over a lot of the evangelical churches in Paris. And the Parisians really aren't that much into religion, or Jesus for that matter yet, but pray for them. But the North, Af the North Africans are like, they love you, and they love you. And when, when I walked into this, I mean, I'm, I'm just, nobody they would know. I walk into this church, because we're a missions team coming in to talk about Jesus, and the first lady I greet she grabs me full frontal, kisses me on this side and on this side of the cheek, and I'm like, what do I do with this? And that was just one of many men and women who came along, and it was the greet each other with a holy kiss kind of thing in this church in Paris. And it was just, for not, I'm not a hugger, so this was really weird for me to experience. It was awkward. See, all of us know what that awkward hug has felt about. In fact, when we talk about grace... For a lot of us, it's kind of like that awkward hug. We're not real sure what to do with this. You know, when a hugger meets a non-hugger, it's really interesting. Because the non-hugger just stands there like a mannequin, kind of stiff, while the other hugger's just, you know, full on, just hugging, patting, doing all kinds of things. And finally, the stiff hugger kind of moves a robotic arm, <laughs> partly to pat, partly to push away, because it doesn't know what to do with this moment. It's very uncomfortable. And sometimes when we come and we approach the topic of grace, there is an awkwardness to it. Because grace is a little bit messy. Grace is a little bit hard to, to define. God offers us something that is so good that seems almost too good to be true. Unmerited favor. I mean, 
unearned, total forgiveness, and a power for living right. And, and we stand there stiff and uncomfortable with it, not sure what to do because we're waiting for that embrace to stop so we can just kind of move on now and live out our own faith and please God through our own works. And we're just not sure how to embrace back grace. But here's the truth. We need to embrace grace. Hugger or non-hugger, listen, you got to embrace grace. And the reason I want to talk about this topic today in relation to Jesus is I think a lot of us still have a distorted view of grace. And therefore, a distorted view of who Jesus is and, and certainly who the Father is. So according to Webster's Dictionary, grace means a lot of things. In fact, I think there were 12 definitions of what grace means. No wonder our kids are confused in school today. Because there's the grace that is a special favor. There's a grace that means a charming or attractive trait or characteristic somebody has. There's that grace that's a title that you address somebody with, your grace. We don't do it so much here in America. There's also that short prayer you say at meal, right? Grace. So you tell your kids we're going to say grace, and then we're going to talk about experiencing grace with Jesus, and they're like, are we going to eat? I mean, I don't understand what that means, right? Because it has a whole other meaning. But Webster got it right, because the number one position definition, the number one, listed first in the list of all possible definitions, he writes this, unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration or sanctification. Now, you deep thinkers and collegiates, you just, you just got blessed right there. The rest of you, your eyes just glazed over. And all of a sudden, the carpet or the PowerPoint screen became a lot more interesting to you than what I'm talking about right now. So how do we take this and make it personal? How do we take this and apply it to our life? How, how do we take this idea and bring it down to earth? Well, the good news is that's exactly what God did. He brought grace right down to earth. He brought the cookie of grace to the very bottom shelf so all of us could see it and experience it. I want you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, steal one. God will forgive you. I'm just kidding. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. You can steal those. You can take that with you. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take it. Uh, if you have your smart device and you have the YouVersion Bible app, a free app out there in all platforms, we encourage you to use that because if you have it, you've downloaded it, you mostly know how to use it. You just open the app. You go to menu. You go to more events. You click events. Neighborhood church should be one of the churches listed among the churches available to get notes. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, who's the word? That's Jesus. Don't get hung up on that yet. Just listen, okay? Just follow through with me. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So what does that mean? Jesus, the Word, is a revelation of who God is to mankind. So when you see Jesus, he's spelling out who God is. He's the Word. You watch his life, you see the Father. But when you watch his life, you also see something else, because he's not just an example of grace. You know, when, when God wanted to teach humans grace, aren't you glad he, he didn't send us a doctrinal statement? Aren't you glad it wasn't a philosophy discussed among the Greeks? Aren't you glad it wasn't some kind of dogma? You know what? When God wanted to teach us grace, he sent a person. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus. And the reason why this is important is because this makes grace relatable. It makes grace approachable. It's hard to approach an idea, if you know what I'm talking about, right? You go to school, you're presented with a lot of ideas. It's hard to approach those. But it's very easy to approach a person. It, they're approachable. They're, they're relational. It's there, and that's exactly what Jesus was. Jesus was full of grace and truth when he came. That's what John told us. This doesn't mean that Jesus was bipolar. Because we look at this and go, 
how could somebody be full of grace and truth? I mean, certainly that means that one day he was graceful, and then another day he was truthful. Because I think all of us know what it feels like to be on one end of that scale when all you have felt was truth. And some of you have been on the other end where maybe all you felt was grace. But how could Jesus be both without losing his mind? Because these seem to be two polar opposite concepts, grace and truth. But the reality is he's an expression of both equally at the same time. And this is why grace becomes that awkward hug. Because it's like, how do we deal with that? Our logical minds can't wrap around this. But here's what I discovered personally for myself, is that grace enables me to face the truth about my current condition. And then that truth drives me back to the grace that I need to adjust my life according to that truth. And then once I've adjusted my life according to that truth by grace, God begins to reveal more things about me that are true. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, okay, that's ugly. What do I do with that? But then there's grace that says, I'm going to give you something you don't have. I'm going to give you the ability, it's unearned. I'm going to give you not only the forgiveness, but the ability to adjust your life according to the truth. And what I discover is this becomes a, not, kind of a cycle. I, I don't want to really call it that directly, but here, follow me. There are just days that when God reveals truth, and how many have experienced that before, when God reveals truth about what's going on in your life? And he shows you some things about yourself that are kind of ugly, maybe deeper within your soul. And as he reveals those, what do you feel? Guilt, shame. It's moving you. It's convicting you. So what do you do? You bring it to Jesus who's grace. Jesus, give me the strength, the power that you've already given me to overcome this, to adjust my life according to the truth. And what I'm discovering is my life will be a full-time job of experiencing the depths of truth and grace within me. Because I'm a work in progress. If he was done with me, he could just take me home now, right? Beam me up, Jesus. But he's not. So while I live in this world, I experience Jesus who is full of grace and truth. And in so doing, it's helping me to become more and more like him. And guess what happens when you do that? We become more full of grace and truth. But what happens when we focus on one at the expense of the other? What happens? I'll show, I'll show you what happens. A graceless truth leads to legalistic living. Some of you, that was the church you grew up in. It was a graceless truth. The pastor preached fiery sermons across the pulpit at you like you were dodging arrows thinking you're going to go to hell right now and you're not even worthy of a God who loves you. And there was this graceless truth and you just felt like all of a sudden you were dished a bunch of rules and until you could do that, don't think about trying to please God. But then there were others and there are a lot of churches still in our world today who lean the other way that there's a truthless grace, and when that happens, it leads to licentious living, which means anything goes. It, it's the idea that there's no moral absolute. You kind of determine, and so because of grace, God's going to love you anyway. He's going to love you right into heaven, regardless of the way you're living today, and, and you've heard both of those concepts. Now, why is this important? Because Paul dealt with this in the church. There were Christians who were using grace as an excuse to sin. And before you get too self-righteous, ask yourself, when's the last time you did that? I think we're going to find out we do it far more often than we think. We're going to get there in a minute. But then there were also these Judaizers who went around saying, okay, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. You've got to like add these things to it. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the Old Testament law. You've got to do all these things. And we began to see legalistic churches develop and grace-based churches develop, and we still deal with that today. But grace and truth aren't enemies, friends. They're never meant to be polar opposites. Jesus came full of both. And for us to experience his grace, that means we have to also be open to his truth. Because Jesus is grace, and I'm so glad he leads with that, and truth. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we get that. So here's the deal. Grace is not a doctrine to believe. It is a person to receive. And if you hear nothing else today... This is what you've got to take away from this message. That grace is not a doctrine to believe. I, I, I want us to understand it a bit better, but it's not just that. If, they, if, they, if that's all it is to you, is you could go to a six-week class on grace and mark the box and say, I did that and now I know all about grace, that isn't enough. It's about a person that you receive. Jesus 
We don't earn that grace. What do we do? We embrace it. Out of his fullness, it said in John chapter 1, we have received grace in place of grace already given. And Jesus talked about this embracing grace in one of his most famous parables in Luke 15. Don't, don't go there because we don't have time, but I just want to take a moment there. You know the story of the, good, of, the, of the prodigal son and the gracious father. Long story short, two sons, one dad, one of the sons decides to rebel against his father. He says, I want my inheritance now, which is basically a way of saying, I wish you were dead, dad. Honestly, that's what he was saying. I want my money now. So he leaves. He leaves home. He spends his money in wild living, uh, sinful life, finds himself in a pigsty, dirty, filthy, broken. And in that moment, he has an aha moment. And he says, you know what? My father's servants live better than this. I'm going to go back. I know my position has changed. I'm not worthy to be a son. I've lost that right. But maybe he'll take me back as a slave. And this is oftentimes, again, how we approach God. I know I've lost the right to be a child of God, but maybe God's looking for slaves. Can I just tell you right now, God is not looking for slaves. He's only looking for children. So what happens? The son makes his way home. And when the son was still a long way off, you got to hear this. When the son was a long way off, the father saw him. And grace burst into action because grace came running. And that grace, it gained momentum and it caused a collision of grace and brokenness in the form of a hug. Yes, a hug, non-huggers. Just deal with it right now, okay? The father embraced his son. As stinky, as filthy, as messy, as sin-ridden as he was, he reeked of sin. The father hugged him. He wasn't concerned about the current quality of his son because grace motivated him to run. And so he runs and he grabs his son and holds him in his arms and the son's in that awkward hug. He's probably the mannequin standing stiff and not sure what to do with this because he was expecting a hand across his face. Not this. And so he pushes away from his father's embrace and begins to say his memorized speech. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be your son, but make me your slave, blah, blah, blah. The father wants to hear nothing of it. He calls the servants. He throws a party. Why? Because the son who was dead is alive. Who was lost is found. What do we see in this story? The son was wrestling with the awkwardness of grace. He wasn't sure what to do with this because it seemed too good to be true. And here's the thing about grace. It is. It's good and it's true. And the son didn't know what to do with that. Because the son's thinking, what did I do to deserve this? And this is the question we all ask every time grace runs at us. Wait, grace, wait a second here. What, have I, what do I got to do? We're waiting for the other foot to fall. We love grace, but it's like, okay, but what? What else? What am I going to do to deserve this? But the point is, he didn't do anything. What did the son do in the story, really? What did he do? He sinned. He wasted all the money. He, died, he, got, he got dirty. And eventually, he's returning to his father, hoping to be a slave. He's done nothing to earn this. That's the point. This isn't about the son. This parable is about the father. This parable is about an example of grace. The wayward son simply had to embrace the grace and accept the forgiveness the father offered because grace is a person. And Jesus comes running toward us when we're still a long way off. And some of you think, I got to come closer. I got to get cleaner. No. Grace runs when you're a far way off. How many of you have experienced that? You know you weren't close to God. You weren't right with God. You weren't in a healthy place. But all of a sudden, grace overwhelmed you. And you're like, Okay, I don't know what to do with this. I feel like I have to earn this. But that's what happened. And this passage in John 1 shows he was full of grace and truth. But it also says this, that Jesus brought, the grace Jesus brought replaces the grace that Moses gave through the law. And this is an important part to understand. Jesus was saying, you know, the law is good. He spoke about it in his Sermon on the Mount. He spoke about the law. He kind of transformed our perspective of the law. And if you don't know what that looks like, make sure you read Matthew 5, 6, 7. Kind of get in there and read it for yourself. But the law is not how we get to God. Grace is. If the law was how we got to God, then the story ends at Malachi. Okay? 
Because everything we would need to get to God is there. But it's not. So we have this new testament. We have this new covenant. We have Jesus. We have grace. See, the law is not truth. I mean, sorry, the law is truth, not grace. The law can't be grace. It can only say, here's truth, that's it. The problem with that is it's, it's static, it's held high, and we can never seem to get there. And the law is also externally focused. It's about a behavior modification. Do these things, the rules. But grace is different because grace is dynamic. Let me explain what I mean by that. Dynamic in the dictionary actually means this. It means that it is a constant activity and progress. It's always working. Don't you you love the verse where it says that his grace is greater than our sin, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? What does that mean? Grace is dynamic. It is active, involved in our life. It is not passive. It's progressive. And grace is internally focused. It's about transforming our life. And Jesus' ministry was an expression of grace, not the law. He didn't go around spouting law like the Pharisees. He talked about something different, and people liked it. John 1 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, and that from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. In other words, he embodied grace. His his being was a continual overflow of grace, and he just kind of oozed grace. Look at these scriptures. Romans 5.15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, that would be Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man Jesus, what? Overflow to many. Move on into 1 Timothy 1.14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me, how? Abundantly. Abundantly. Grace upon grace upon. Jesus oozed this grace. Grace upon grace along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And when you came into contact with Jesus, you came into contact with grace. Occasionally, I bump into Pastor Gary Sigenthaler, who was a former pastor of this church. Some of you know and love Gary. And you know that when you see Gary, something is going to happen. He's going to hug you. Gary is a hugger. Um, And every time Gary sees me, he gives me a hug. And I hug back. Three pats right? Um, But when I walk away from that, Gary is still on me. Let me say, let me tell you what I mean. His cologne, his, his essence that is about him, when he gives me a hug, I walk away and it's like, Gary's on me. And you know what? I think when people bumped into Jesus, in his ministry, it's like grace got on him, and they didn't know what to do with that, especially the religious leaders. They were like, oh, this guy's nuts. He's a lunatic. But there were those who loved it. I'll give you an example from John 8. It's the woman caught in adultery. The story kind of goes that Jesus is teaching. He's got a crowd around him, and this is a great opportunity for the Pharisees, teachers of the law, to expose Jesus for the lunatic he really is. And so they go out and they, they catch this woman in the very act of adultery. They yank her away from the man. Why they didn't confront the man, I don't know. Maybe he was one of the religious leaders. But they take the woman, drag her out of her home. We don't even know if she's clothed. We don't know what she looks like, but there is shame all over her. The one thing we do know is she's, she is shame-ridden. Brought into the company of a bunch of people listening to Jesus, and she's brought into the company of the rabbi, Jesus. I'm sure she's heard about him, because who hasn't in this area? And you look at John chapter 8, and you go to verse 4. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, which means she was set up, right? How do you catch somebody in the act? Unless you're following, looking, trying to catch people doing bad. That's what, that's what the law does. That's what legalism does, catches them being bad. So what do you say? The law says we should stone such women. What do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But what did Jesus do? He bends down and he starts to write in the sand. Don't you wish the camera of the Bible would just pan down to what he was writing? 
It's like, I'm so mad that's in there. John, why did you put that in there and not give us any details? Some of you, are, you know what I'm talking about. You're detail-oriented. What did he write in the sand? Let me just tell you right now, that wasn't the point. Because if we knew what Jesus wrote in the sand, we'd make a theology out of that. That wasn't the point of what was happening in this moment. It wasn't Jesus building a case for some doctrine or theology. This was about grace in motion. So it didn't really matter what happened out. Something did happen down here that upset the people standing there. Because he stood up and said, let the person who is without sin cast the first stone. And it says that from the oldest to the youngest, because the older, they're, they're wiser, us, you know, young leaders, young kids, you know, they know everything, and they're perfect. I'm so glad the elders led well first, probably because it was their name written in that sand. Maybe with a sin written by it, I don't know. Jesus knows the hearts of men. That wasn't the point, though. The point was, Jesus said, who, who's, who's the person here who can throw the first stone? Nobody could do it. They all walked away. He looks at the woman and says, where are your accusers? There's nobody here to accuse you. Who was the one who could? Who was the one without sin in that environment? It was Jesus. What he was saying is, I, basically, I have the ability to do this. And I'm giving you something you don't deserve. You deserve a rock hurled in your face. I'm giving you grace. And he says to her, Go and sin no more. What do we see? Jesus in his fullness of grace and truth in this account. And the whole point isn't to build the theology about what, what grace would look like if Jesus wrote it out as a plan. It's about action. Jesus was dynamic. It was active. It was progressing on as he was bumping into people, and they were getting grace on them. Jack Hayford said it this way, that grace is God meeting us at our point of need in the person of Jesus Christ. All of us know at some point in time what it felt like to be that adulterous woman standing in our shame before a holy Jesus in an accusing crowd. Of course, the accusing crowd was our own thoughts and probably our own ideas or what we thought people perceived about us. We've all been there. We deserved the stone of death, and Jesus gave us grace. Why? Because he is grace. He's a person of grace. And when you picture Jesus, you can picture God, because some of you still have a perverted view of God, because one of the most harmful things that we can do as humans is to define God based on our own imagination. But we do this all the time. We look at God through the lens of our earthly father or, or some male figure in our lives, and we go, forget it. That God is not a God for me. Because when somebody played that role in my life, they were abusive. They were harsh. They were critical. They were absent. They were judgmental. You fill in the blanks. We've got to knock that off because when we look at Jesus, we see the Father. In fact, Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. And so what Jesus was doing when he was interacting with this woman was an expression, a revelation of the heart of the Father who sent Jesus' grace to us to show us that he loves us and will give us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and a victorious, abundant life. That's why Jesus came. He came to reveal the Father, to show us God. And if you want to know what God thinks about you or what God would say about your sin or how God would respond to you if you were face-to-face -face with him, then look at Jesus, and you'll know. He's the one that says to you, I don't condemn you, but I've got a better plan for your life. And by grace, you can be forgiven and live victorious. Here's the thing, when we realize that grace is a person, not a principle, then refusing or abusing grace is no longer an option. See, it's easy to refuse a principle. It's easy to abuse or, or bend some kind of doctrine, because we always want to bend things in our favor, don't we? I mean, that's just what we do. We bend things into our favor. And it's easy to do that, to refuse it or, or to abuse it, but it's a much harder to, review, to refuse or abuse a person or to violate a relationship. Let me give you an example. I'm married to Tricia. We're in a marriage 
covenant. But what if in that covenant I said, you know, Trisha loves me. She's really good to me. She's very faithful, dedicated. I I bet that I could cheat on her and she would still love me and take me back. I mean, who does that, right? And if you are, knock it off. Okay, one, just knock it off. Two, listen to last month's series. It's just, it's for you. Nobody does that. Why? Because when I'm in a relationship with Trisha, it's not about a principle. It is about a relationship. It's personal, not principle. And when you have a relationship with Jesus, he's not a principle, and his grace isn't just some doctrine that you bend to give yourself permission to sin. Well, Jesus knows me. He loves me. He's gracious. I can do this, and then we'll be okay. You know, we all do that, friends, in our brokenness and in our sin and in our own arguments. We do this. But when grace is a person, mm, we can't. Because when you look in the eyes of grace and you meet grace and when you embrace grace and when you see the nail print hands of grace and the fire in his eyes and when you feel his relentless love for you, it will not motivate you to sin. It'll instead motivate you to righteous living. When we meet grace, it becomes fuel for our faith, not an excuse for our sin. And this is the part that makes it awkward, right? Because we we want grace to be more simple than that. You can't get any simpler, but we want to give it handles that make it a bit more logical and palatable. But the woman caught in adultery that day, she wasn't the only person who needed to experience grace. You know who else did? The people who thought they were good enough. The people who thought they were good enough, that they didn't need God, they didn't need to stay and listen to Jesus, they didn't need to say, Jesus, you're right, I'm a sinner. What they do? The cowards walked away to find somebody else some other day and find some other rabbi who would approve of their stoning. You see, pride is one of the greatest enemies of grace. And some of us, we deal with that, either a religious pride or, or just a man-made, self-made pride. And it is the enemy of grace all the time. Because here's the part that I think must frustrate God a bit. We take this grace-based and this love-filled, amazing relationship, and then we kind of build walls and rules around it. And we turn it into a religion rather than a relationship. We want to quantify and codify and classify grace and what it means and who's in and who's out until it's more about us than it is about God. And we've been doing this, friends, for centuries in the church. Take something so wonderful and we complicate it. We as humans are so good at doing that. We take something simple and we complicate it. But grace is not complicated. But to say that somebody deserves grace is a contradiction in terms. Those religious leaders thought they deserved it. But you can no more deserve grace than you can plan your own surprise party. You know what I'm saying? Some of you might be able to plan your own surprise birthday party because you're just at that point where you're not going to remember what you said today or planned today when it comes to tomorrow. And so you could throw a party for yourself Friday and totally forget and be totally shocked. (laughs) But not many of us can do that. If you're there, we got help for you in this community. Wonderful places, padded rooms and... No, just kidding. But see, as planning takes away the element of surprise when it comes to parties... Thinking you earned grace takes away the element of grace. Because once you think you deserved it, that it you have deserved is no longer grace. Why? Because grace is unearned, unmerited favor. And this is where we can't stand this. It gets, it gets hard for us, especially people who live in this domain right here who are very sharp thinkers because you look at that and go, this isn't logical. Because we believe in cause and effect. If you drop an apple, it's going to fall to the ground. We believe that there's a cause and there's an effect. But here's the thing about when it comes to grace. You had nothing to do with the cause. Nothing. Stephen said it, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were powerless. And the friends, it wasn't like God was waiting for you to get more power. The point was that is our position pre-Christ and pre-grace. We're powerless to do anything. 
powerless to change. And once we think that we could earn it and deserve it, it's no longer ours to have. And that's why it's illogical, because we want there to be a cause and then an effect. I do this, and then Jesus loves me. I do this, and then God loves me. We want to have this happen. But here's the deal. Before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. You can't go back that far in history and say, you did that. You can't go back and say, yeah, I was in the Garden of Eden. Yep, I was the reason why, you know, Jesus and I had a conversation, and this is what the plan was, that he'd give grace, and I, bet I was a part of making that happen. The problem is we put a lot of effort into trying to create a cause because that's how we're wired, and that's what religion does. It says, here's the cause, and here's the effect. You do these things, then here's what you're going to get. But friends, listen, grace means that our righteousness doesn't depend on our unfinished works, which will always be unfinished, but on Jesus' finished work. Friends, I can keep working until the cows come home. I can never earn God's favor based on my works. What were the words he spoke from the cross? It is finished. That doesn't mean that he was done suffering and ready to get off this thing. It means, Father, the reason you sent me, full of grace and truth, to be the sacrificial lamb for all of the sin of mankind, I've done that. It's finished. There's nothing else hanging on this cross that can save people. It's done, and it's me. And he said, it's finished. The problem is we want to hang more things on the cross and say, well, we need this, and we need this, and we need this. And Jesus says, stop it, because it is finished in me. When I was a kid at Christmas, my grandparents bought me what they thought was a very cool thing. Some of your grandparents know what I'm talking about. You bought your grand, you thought it was the coolest thing. They bought me this, it was a small package, and I opened it, I was all excited because I saw some things on it that said light bright, and I was like getting excited because when you're a kid in the 70s and you get a light bright, that was pretty awesome. Anybody know what a light bright? Some people, light bright, make them think that my blind, right? <laughs> Some of you know that. You stole the jingle in your head. So I rip it open, and it's like, okay, this is way too thin to be a light bright. Because, you know, those light brights were about like this, and needed a light bulb, and little plasticky colored sticky things you put in the light bright. Some of you have to go Google light bright now, because you weren't in that generation. What they got me was a filler pack for light brights which means the little sheets you put on the light bright that I didn't have. <laughs> so I got these light bright sheets. And it, what do you do with that? Well, thank you, Grandpa and Grandma. This is wonderful. What was the point? I was given a gift, but I had to complete it. So my parents, I'm certainly by their act of love and grace, bought us a light bright. So we could put these sheets on the light bright and make the pretty things and the pretty designs with the light bright. I think here's the, what happens. A lot of us approach grace kind of similar. We think it's this package of filler paper. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for the papers. Now I'm going to do the rest. I'm going to get the light bright. I'm going to get the little pokey things. And we're going to make this work. So thank you for doing your part, Jesus. Now I'll take it from here. And we try to earn a grace that we can no longer receive because we've moved from receiving it to earning it. Look at what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 1. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Well, that tells me some really important stuff. One, you didn't have anything to do with this. This isn't about you. This grace is because God loves you, but it's never about what you've done. Secondly, it tells me this, that God has a purpose for you. And you'll never know it until you experience his grace. Let's move on. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed. So here's that it happened before you had anything to do with it, friends. And then it was revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We would do well, friends, to stop focusing on our sins and on our failures, our weaknesses, or, or our legalistic attempts to live holy lives. And it's time to embrace the grace. It's time to really stand in that awkward hug and then just fold into it and say, okay, I can rest 
from trying. Now, living and experiencing his grace is, is going to reveal truth, and it's going to keep changing you and transforming you. It doesn't mean we just sit back and go, glory, right? There's still work to be done within us that will happen as grace and truth work in tandem within us. But here's the bottom line for today. Grace is where we receive forgiveness for the past and power to live differently in the present. Don't just think grace got you across the salvation line and, whoo, I'm so glad I got there. Because that's just where grace begins, friends. It's about forgiveness, yes, but then it's about what takes place as you continue into the present and into the future as he lives with you. The Holy Spirit now, the Jesus within us. Jesus said, I will send you another comforter, one that is like me. And guess what the Holy Spirit is? The comforter. Guess what the Holy Spirit's full of? Grace, truth, all those characteristics that are at work in our life. When we begin to see that and experience that for ourselves, that, that grace is forgiveness and then power to live differently. See, grace is so simple that we have a hard time believing it could be true. But I'm convinced that unless it's too good to be true, it's not grace. And that brings us to the awkwardness of it. But let's stop because Jesus isn't awkward. Jesus is grace. And his grace is more than enough for your past, for your present, and for your future. So today as we close the service, I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. What have you made grace to be? Maybe for you it's, it's been hard work. Jesus, I'm going to try harder next time. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to, I'm going to try harder. And all the while, you're trying to earn something you will never get. Because grace is not an earnable commodity. It's a gift. It's a hug. It's an embrace. And it's a person. And we simply receive. And then begin to let his grace and truth work in your life. I know that this is awkward. Some of you are still going to walk away today scratching your head because you don't get it. Because you need more rules around it. (laughs) Well then, stop it. But maybe you're here today and and you know that you're that that person who's been maybe running away from God or, or maybe you've been thinking, how can I make my way back because I'm so broken, I'm so filthy, I'm so dirty, I'm so shame-ridden. Certainly, he, he wouldn't accept me. Remember that grace is dynamic. It's active, it's progressive, it runs at you. And when it runs at you and throws a big bear hug around you, don't be the stiff mannequin who just doesn't know what to do with this. And maybe that's where you're at today. Lighten up, give yourself a break, cut yourself some slack, and step into the grace. And that's you, and you're saying, Kelly, I need that today. Just raise a hand. I'll pray with you this morning. Just raise a hand. No one's looking around. Just raise a hand. That's me. Thank you. Hands going up a lot of places. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. We pray with you right now. Jesus, you know what's going on in our lives. Because you see the prodigal road that many of us have been down. You know what our pigsty was. You know what we smell like. But you don't care. Because your grace runs. Because your grace isn't a principle. It isn't a doctrine. It's a person who looked through the brokenness of human's history and said, I'm going to be the solution for this brokenness. I am going to insert myself into the story of brokenness. I am going to embody grace and be grace. So thank you, Jesus, for being grace right now in this room. The people can stop running. They can stop hiding. They can stop their memorized speeches or they can stop trying harder because they can meet grace that's running at them at full force, about to have a collision of their brokenness in your grace. And in this moment, God, you are pleased because this has been what it's all about. 
We're not a burden to you. We're a blessing. And when this happens, we satisfy the desire of your heart and all heaven celebrates. That's what grace does. Receives the sinner, throws a party, and sets their life on a course of victory. So I step into that day today, God, and I pray for each person who raised their hands that, God, they would recognize it starts with a relationship with you, receiving you as Lord and Savior. In this moment, they can just simply confess their need of you. Your word tells us if we confess our sins, you're faithful, you're just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness, that wherever far our grace has gone or our sin has gone, your grace has abounded. So thank you. I step into your grace this morning, Jesus, and I will drop myself into the full-blown bear hug of your grace, and I receive you as my Savior. And now help me to walk with grace and truth that work in my life, because you're going to show me stuff that's going to feel hard. But your grace gives me the strength, the help, the hope I need to deal with the truth within my own soul and then lean back on grace and discover more truth. And it's going to be that because that's who you are. Thank you for your patience with me. I love you, Jesus. Now, God, as we go from this place, we all need to go in that kind of grace because your church is never more beautiful than when we reflect who you are, Jesus full of grace and truth, and it's messy, it's hard. We want to give rules. We're going to stop, and we're just going to do what you would do, Jesus. We're going to hug people with grace, and someone's going to get on them, and they're going to come to know you. Help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 